Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Christopher Porco was a spoiled college student who had spent years getting away with stealing and forging his father's signature. When his parents found out about his discretions and threatened to cut him off and ruin his college party lifestyle, he tried to cash in another way. This is Monsters. Christopher Porco was born on July 9, 1983, to Peter and Joan Porco. In 2004, Peter was a 52-year-old state appellate division court clerk. 54-year-old Joan worked as a speech pathologist. The couple married in 1974 and had two sons. First was Jonathan, then Christopher a few years later. They lived on Broccoli Drive in Delmar, New York, just outside of Albany. It's Broccoli Drive, not broccoli drive. 23-year-old Jonathan was an officer in the United States Navy and was stationed in South Carolina. Their younger son, 21-year-old Christopher, was a student at the University of Rochester. On November 15, 2004, Peter had not shown up for work that morning, so the court sent court officer Michael Hart for a welfare check. Peter's body was found near the front door covered in blood. Michael called 911 to report his findings. 911, what's the location of the emergency? Broccoli Drive, Delmar, New York. Okay. Broccoli? Yes. Yeah, what's the problem? There's a, a 55-year-old white male down on the ground. We have a court officer on the scene. 55-year-old male? Yes. An armed court officer on the scene. He's on the scene? Yes. Okay. The guy did not show up for work today. He's, he's unresponsive? He's unresponsive. He's unresponsive, but he's on the line. What do you mean he's on the line? Well, my boss is speaking to him on the cell phone right now. Okay. This okay. Okay. You, you don't know. You, he's unresponsive. You, you don't know if there's any breathing, anything, do you? Checking his pulse right now. We're trying to see there's a pulse. Okay. Keep with me on that. It's a crime scene. It's a crime scene? It's a crime scene is what I'm being told by the officer on the scene. Okay, and what, why, why is that? Uh, there's blood down on the ground, and he's not breathing, we need... Yeah, yeah okay, okay. Um, okay, we're on our way. Okay? Okay. You want me to stay on line? Uh, this third-party call, really not, okay? Okay. Okay? Yep. When police arrived, they found the body of Peter laying in the entryway of the home. He suffered massive head trauma and was declared deceased. Joan was found in the couple's blood-soaked bed, also suffering extreme head trauma, but Joan was still clinging to life. Investigators followed a trail of blood around the house. 
It turned out that Peter Porco did not die right away. He had gotten up at some point after the attack, went downstairs, and attempted to do some mundane tasks. His brain damage had put him on autopilot. He went into the bathroom, he started making breakfast, and he went out to get the morning paper. It was at that time he locked himself out, so he grabbed a hidden key and let himself back into the house, leaving the key in the door. It was then that he collapsed on the floor and finally died. Upstairs in the master bedroom, they found Joan still alive and breathing. The paramedic said that Joan was lying on her back, her left eye missing, jaw crushed, teeth missing, and her skull was fractured in several places. Lying next to her on the bed was a bloody axe that authorities determined was the murder weapon. While she was being stabilized, Detective Christopher Bodish took the opportunity to question her. According to his testimony, he asked her if she could hear him, and she nodded yes. He asked her if a family member had done this to her, and she nodded yes. He asked if Jonathan had done this, and she nodded no. He asked if Christopher had done this, and she nodded yes. He confirmed that it was Christopher who had done this, and she nodded yes. Christopher's defense counsel said in an interview that four people testified to the event that happened while Joan was being stabilized, and Detective Bodish was the only one who gave that version of events. They also said that everyone had a completely different story, so it's hard to say what really happened. She was rushed to the hospital, where she underwent extensive surgery before she was placed into an induced coma. Christopher had become the main suspect in the attack, but investigators wouldn't have to track him down. It turned out that the Times Union had called Christopher to interview him about his parents' death, and that was, supposedly, the first time he was hearing about it. Christopher called the police that were local to his parents and asked about it. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information for me. Hey, Chris, whereabouts are you? I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, you're at, in Rochester? Yes. Okay. Do you have a phone number there, Chris? Yeah, I sure do. Um, 585-274. Okay, are, are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or...? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. Is there a room number there? Uh, Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found... Um, I guess that I don't know. They didn't say how or anything. Okay. I'm going to try and find you somebody you can talk to. I'm not quite sure who's in the office, but let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. Thank and you very just much. Hang on the line for me, okay? Thank you. Chris? Yeah. Okay. One of my detectives is out on the road right now, Detective Rudolph. Okay. We're going to have him call you back momentarily, okay? Thank you very much. Let me just confirm your phone number, 585? Yes. 274? Yes. That's correct. Okay, you'll be expecting a call from Detective Rudolph. He's going to give you a call right back, okay? Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Hello. The news just told me that my parents were dead. What's up with that? Detective Rudolph had called Christopher back and told him the news that his father was dead and that his mother was in the hospital. He has some reception issues with his cell phone and has Christopher call him back at the station. Hi, I'm calling back uh, Detective um uh, I don't remember his name. I was on the phone a minute ago. Tell me to call you back. Okay, your name? Uh, Chris Borco. Hold on one second. Thank you. Hey, Chris? Yes. Yeah, okay, that's better. I don't have the static anymore. 
Um, okay, so now who's bringing you down? Uh, my uncle John, my mother's brother. What's his last name? Uh, Belzano, B-A-L-Z-A-N-O. Okay. Is it just the two of you that are going to be coming coming down? As far as I know, yes. Okay. Uh, now, as far as when was the last time you said you came down and saw your parents? Uh, about three weeks ago. I, it was on the weekend. Um, I can't give you a day. I have, to, I have to figure it out. I'm not really sure. Okay, but about three weeks ago? Yeah. Okay, and the email, what, what's going on with your email? You said you, um, you, well, you emailed him today, but you didn't get a, a response? Well, yeah, I, I emailed him this afternoon. Uh, my dad at work. Okay. Um, about uh, college loan stuff. About what? College loan stuff. Oh, about college loans? Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Let me just... So you will be here probably... You're going to go right to Albany Med? Uh, I don't know. Where, where, I don't even know where my mom is. But... Yeah, she is at Albany Med. Okay. Do, do you know her condition? Uh, in... No, because I haven't talked to her. Let me give you my pager number. Okay. Because um... when you get there, I'll come and see if there's anything I can do for you. Okay. Four two two. Mhm. Well, and you're gonna have a cell phone, right, or your uncle's cell phone? Yeah. All right. Let me give you my cell phone also, just in case. Okay. Oh, it is seven eight eight. Mhm. Seven eight eight. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye bye. Christopher asks what his mother's condition is, but there's absolutely no concern in his voice. Honestly, I think he just wants to know what his chances of her survival are. Her living through the attack messes up his plans of inheriting their money. During the investigation, police found no sign of forced entry. A key was left in the front door, but it turned out to be a key that was normally hidden outside that only family members knew about. This was the key that Peter had used to get back into the house when he went out to get the morning paper. The door had closed behind him, automatically locking, so he grabbed the hidden key and let himself back in. The phone line had also been cut, but it turned out that the alarm system had actually been disarmed using the family's shared code. A representative for the alarm company testified that the alarm disconnected from the phone line at 4.59 a.m., more than two and a half hours after the alarm had been deactivated with the family code. Drawers had been pulled out, but none of the contents were spilled, which is a common sign of someone staging a crime scene to look like a robbery. They determined that the axe had been in the home prior to the attack. They found the family dog had been locked in the basement. They also found a cashier's check from Peter made out to the Sarasota Springs court to pay for a traffic violation by Christopher. It had Christopher Porco written in the note, and it had blood on it. Outside, they found a window to the garage opened a crack and the screen was cut, but when they tried to open it, they couldn't. Inside, Peter had drilled two holes through the window frame and put bolts in the holes, locking the window open just about four inches. So nobody would have been able to get in through that window. So the earlier investigation where Joan's laptop was stolen, um, one of the screen windows, the screen was cut, okay? And the police thought that that was the means of uh, entry to the burglar who stole Joan's laptop. In investigating the murder, the screen in the garage window was cut, okay? So it was like a commonality. Like if this was an intruder, you know, we've got the cut screen when an intruder got in one point in Thanksgiving, I think it was. That's right. The year before. And then the cut screen um, in the garage at the time of the homicide. But the cut screen to the, the window in the garage, Peter had... Um, 
drilled a hole, uh, two holes through either side of the sash and put it put bolts in so that you could only lift the window up so far. So if somebody forgot to, to lock it at night, that if somebody pulled it up, they weren't going to get it all the way up. So that cut screen could not possibly have been a means of access, but it was, you know, a um, kind of a red herring that we suggested that um, Christopher left to make it look like somebody had broken in, except he didn't realize that, you know, Dad had basically secured that window. So if you cut the screen, you're not going to be able to get the window up. You can see the thought process as it operates here, because anything that doesn't fit their theory is clearly not true. <laughs> well, okay. I think it fit perfectly with our, our theory because he staged the uh, burglary to steal Joan's laptop, and now he's staging this to uh, make it look like it's an intruder that came in and, you know, butchered his parents. Also, it wasn't true. Someone didn't break in through that window because it wouldn't open more than four inches. Christopher was brought into the police station and interviewed. This interview was deemed inadmissible in court because of something that happened with a lawyer who showed up on Christopher's behalf at the police station. The defense lawyer claimed that the detectives barred him from coming into the interview room, but during an event held 15 years after the crime, the prosecutor explained what happened. Essentially what happened was Chris came home from Rochester. He was met at the hospital by the uh, Bethlehem police who asked him to come to the police station. He agreed to do that. He walked with them. They stopped at Dunkin' Donuts, which was kind of the butt of some jokes. But then they proceeded on to the, uh, the Bethlehem Police Department. Mike and I were there at the Bethlehem Police Department when Chris came. We were not in the interview room, but we were there. And while they were questioning Chris, who sat down, he said, you know, he was very charming and he agreed to answer all their questions. While that was happening, Mr. Polster showed up at the front desk. And one of the lieutenants came to us to ask for some advice and said, he, there's someone here saying he's Chris's lawyer. What do we do? Do we have to let him back? And we said, it's up to Chris to decide who his lawyer is. Someone cannot unilaterally enter on his behalf. Go ask Chris if this guy's his lawyer or not. So they didn't quite do what we asked them to do. What they did was they went back in and they said, hey, that guy John at the hospital, is he your lawyer? And Chris said, no, he's a friend of my dad's. I don't think he could even be my lawyer. He's a good friend of my dad's. Okay, so are you okay speaking to us? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine speaking to you. And what the judge ruled was that was not enough. They, the police should have been more clear that there's someone here saying he's your lawyer. Do you want him as your lawyer or not? And they didn't do that. So, so that's why it was suppressed. But, yeah, that, that interview was, was kind of long, and it was essentially Chris gave an alibi, and he was asked where he was that night, and he said, I was sleeping in the lounge of, of my dorm, uh, all night. And that was really the crux of, of what he said. He said some other gems in there, which we would have loved to have at the trial, but we didn't. And, um, you know, throughout the trial, there were arguments that, you know, that the this fruit of the poisonous tree argument, which is that based on this unlawful interview, the people have built their entire case around that. We were lucky enough that Chris told that same story to everybody, not just the police. He told it to his uncle when his uncle came to pick him up. I slept in the lounge all night. He told to all his friends. He repeatedly told people at the hospital, um, you know, where were you, Chris? I was at school. I was sleeping in the lounge all night. And we, you know, while Chris was being interviewed, there were people at, there were, there were Bethlehem police at the school interviewing people in the dorm who all said, unluckily for Chris, they all, for some reason, that Sunday night sat up watching a movie 
in the lounge, a whole group of kids, Shrek 2, I remember the name of the movie. And they all said, Porco wasn't here. Porco was not in the lounge. He so had given we, up his bed right to his fraternity president who was correct. visiting. And yeah. so he thought, okay, this is, I'm going to be on the couch in the lounge. And, right. uh, and what he didn't know is that there. everybody else was there as well. Mm -hmm. I have a copy of the transcript from that interview, and some of the things that Christopher said that the prosecutor wasn't able to use at trial were, Christopher said that their dog was a little older and, quote, a lot of times, end quote, would need to go out at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. He said that his dad would let the dog out and then forget to set the alarm when he went back to bed. Well, the alarm system keeps a record of all activity for the previous 15 days. An investigator said there wasn't a single other time that the alarm was turned off in the middle of the night in those 15 days. He said that the past few times he had spoken to his father over email was about school financial aid. He said that his father had co-signed the loan for his Jeep Cherokee and that he had paid for the last two payments for the auto loan. None of that was true. He specifically asked if his mother was coherent and if she could speak. Again, I believe he's trying to find out if she may have identified him to the police. While Christopher was being interviewed, investigators were racing to gather as much information as they could. They discovered that Christopher had told people in the previous months that he was going to receive a $2.8 million gift from his grandmother. When detectives asked him about it during an interview, he said he made it all up to impress people. They also discovered that the previous Friday, he had been in the Albany area and had met his ex-girlfriend where he discussed buying real estate. When they questioned him about that, he claimed that it was also an effort to make himself look good. Eventually, the detectives had him break down exactly what he did on Sunday, November 14th. He claimed that he was at the University of Rochester, three and a half hours away from his parents' home. He said that he had watched a movie in his dorm room that evening, but he had lent his bed to the regional director of his fraternity, so he laid down on a couch in the dormitory lounge. He claimed to have laid down on the couch at about 11.30 p.m. and fell asleep, waking up at around 8 a.m. Then he went out for a run. He specifically said he only went back to his room to get his shoes and then went straight out for a run. He said he ran a mile and a half and was back in his dorm in 20 minutes. After hanging out with various people throughout the morning, he eventually went back to his room and was called by the Times Union regarding the death of his parents. Unfortunately, Christopher's classmates wouldn't back up his story. Nobody could recall seeing him sleeping on the couch in the lounge. You may recall the prosecutor previously saying that the students were actually having a movie night in the lounge, watching Shrek 2, and nobody saw him there. In fact, nobody was able to place him at the university until after 8 a.m. the morning of the 15th. In the years prior to the attack on the Porcos, there had been two burglaries in the home. On November 28, 2002, a time when Christopher was home for the Thanksgiving holiday, someone broke into the Porco home and stole two laptops. They had found a window screen cut which looked like the point of entry for the break-in. On July 21, 2003, another time when Christopher was staying in the house, there was another burglary. Joan's laptop was stolen along with some other electronics. In June of 2003, the veterinary hospital that Christopher worked at was burglarized. The alarm was turned off and a number of electronics were stolen. Police at the time of the burglaries filed reports, but the chances of finding stolen electronics is pretty slim. 
When investigators started looking into Christopher after the attack on his parents, they discovered that items from all three burglaries had been sold using his eBay account. They traveled to San Diego and retrieved Joan's stolen laptop from the person who purchased it. They also found John Kearney, the owner of the veterinary hospital's stolen cell phone in a safe in Christopher's bedroom at the Porco residence. It was discovered that Christopher had also been scamming people on eBay. He would sell an item and after receiving the money, he would pose as his brother and notify the buyer that Christopher had died, making it hard, especially back then, for the buyer to get their product or a reimbursement. At the end of the fall semester in 2003, Christopher had been forced to withdraw from the University of Rochester due to poor grades. He enrolled at Hudson Valley Community College but never managed to improve his grades. He never even finished the semester. In 2004, he forged transcripts from the community college with all A's and B's and used them to re-enroll at the University of Rochester. He lied to his parents and told them that a professor had misplaced his final exam and that's why he had a failing grade. He claimed that, because of the mistake, the university would pay for his upcoming semester of college. He told his parents that he would need their financial information and a co-signer in order to secure a loan to pay for $2,000 worth of fees. Christopher took that information and got a $31,000 loan from Citibank. Soon after that, he forged his father's signature again to finance a yellow Jeep Wrangler. During Christopher's interview with police, he made it sound like the Citibank loan was just an honest mistake and that it was being fixed at the school, but emails from Peter to Christopher would prove that to be a lie. Less than two weeks before his murder, Peter discovered the student loan on his credit. He sent an email to Christopher expressing his disapproval and explaining that he would be calling Citibank the next day. During that call, Peter was informed about the $16,000 loan that he supposedly co-signed for the purchase of a Jeep Wrangler. He sent another email to Christopher, this time threatening legal action. He said, quote, I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim liability, and that applies to the Citibank College loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loans, end quote. A couple days later, Jones sent him an email questioning his mental state. Seven days after that email, Peter and Joan Porco were attacked with an axe in their home while they slept. When one of the Porco's neighbors told investigators that he saw a yellow Jeep in their driveway sometime before 4 o'clock in the morning, the police were sure that they were on the right track. They believed that Christopher had left Rochester the night of the 14th, used the family code to disarm the alarm, and attacked his parents with an axe. He then cleaned himself up, staged a robbery, and cut the phone line before driving back to Rochester. He cut the screen on the garage window, not knowing that it was secured from the inside, and cut the phone line on the way out, not knowing that the security system would record the time it was disconnected from the phone service. Four security cameras at the university caught a yellow Jeep Wrangler leaving the campus at 10.36 p.m. on the 14th and returning at 8.30 a.m. on the following morning. When investigators checked two toll booths between Albany and Rochester, the operator of the toll booth leaving Rochester said he saw a yellow Wrangler pass through his toll booth at about 10.45 p.m. on the 14th. The operator of the toll booth entering Albany said that she saw a yellow Wrangler pass through her toll at 1.51 a.m. the morning of the 15th. 
She said the vehicle stood out because it was approaching the toll at a high rate of speed, which alarmed her. The alarm for the Porco residence was deactivated at 2.15 a.m. These toll roads have a number of exits, and you have to pay a different amount depending on how far you travel on the toll road. So when you get on the throughway, the attendant hands you a ticket, and then when you exit, you put your ticket in a slot and it tells you how much you have to pay. We learned a lot about the throughway uh, during this. Because there's so much money, I couldn't believe the amount of money that runs through those booths every day. They're, and, and fraud and theft, they have a really specific way they do things. First of all, they all wear gloves. They hit a button, it, it, it's in a box, in a sealed box. They feed it up into a feeder. When you drive through, they hit a button, the ticket pops out, they take it with their gloves, they hand it to the driver. The driver does whatever they do with it until they get back on the other end. They take the ticket and they drop it through a slot and it goes into a box. So there's really not a whole lot of people putting hands on this that aren't wearing gloves other than the motorist. And then they take these boxes and they keep every single one of them in a warehouse, every one of these tickets. So when the state police went and they said, let's collect all the tickets going from Rochester to Albany, Albany to Rochester during the relevant hours, and there was just a handful, really. And so the first thing the state police did was they tried to get fingerprints off of them, and there was really nothing of any value. And then they said, well, let's submit it to the lab, see if we can get DNA off of these, you know, couple of specific tickets. And they got some DNA, but it was not enough for them to do anything with. And and that's, that was a dead end for the toll tickets. And we were like, okay, that we struck out there. Months go by, and I remember sitting down with Mike and Mike saying, Dave, is there anything else we can do with that DNA from that ticket? Months had gone by. And then we started looking into it, and we found this lab in Pennsylvania that does mitochondrial DNA. So we learned about mitochondrial DNA. We said, let's give it a shot. So the people at the lab in the biosciences section, we had them mail it down to this lab in Pennsylvania, they analyzed the uh, toll ticket and they said, we got a mitochondrial profile off of it. It's not as discriminating as nuclear DNA, that's true. They said, but there's this weird little something in it that 99.6% of the population doesn't have this one little thing, but it's kind of interesting DNA. Send us Chris's DNA. So we sent Chris's DNA and guess what? Chris happens to be within that 0.4% of the population that would have this strange thing. So is it nuclear DNA? No, it's not. But it's just another piece of the puzzle. 0.4% of the population of New York State in 2004 was about 76,000 people for the entire state. If you remove the population of New York City in 2004, then 0.4% of the rest of the population is about 44,000 for the entire state of New York besides New York City. What are the chances that someone drove through the exact same toll booths that Christopher would have had to go through to drive to his parents' house at the exact same times that matched the times he has seen on security cameras leaving his campus and then returning? It's pretty slim. In November of 2005, Christopher Porco was indicted for the murder and attempted murder of his parents. His friends and family helped raise the $250,000 bail, including his boss at the veterinary clinic that he had stolen from. In another strange turn of events, Joan Porco had awoken from her coma and claimed that she had no memory of the attack. She now believed her son was innocent and would often be seen walking arm-in-arm -arm with him at the courthouse. 
Her identification of Christopher at the scene was deemed testimonial hearsay since she had no recollection of the night she was attacked. The defense couldn't cross-examine her about her identification, so it was inadmissible. It's definitely possible that a traumatic brain injury could cause her to lose her memory, but I always wonder how much denial played a role in her memory loss. I imagine the thought of her own son murdering her husband and attempting to murder her is not an easy thing to deal with. Christopher was not showing any sadness over the death of his father. Pictures show Christopher chugging alcohol as he parties with friends as if he doesn't have a care in the world. He was also known to speed recklessly into the court parking lot. There was also a day, I don't know if you all remember this, but a day where the uh, judge called us into chambers before we started, and he said that, I believe it was one of the, one of the court officers, said that Chris came whizzing into the parking line, almost hit the jury in his Jeep, and asked you to have a conversation with him about maybe not being so reckless in the parking lot. <laughs> mm. Christopher was an arrogant douchebag who thought he could get away with anything. I know this firsthand because I wrote to him in prison and he responded. The minute I started reading his first message to me, the bullshit meter in my head was off the charts. I simply wanted to know, if he was innocent, who he thought would have broken into his parents' house, someone who happened to know the code to the security alarm, killed his parents brutally with an axe, didn't steal anything, and then left, cutting the phone line on the way out. I never got that answer. He spun every little detail of his case in ways to try to bring up questions about the evidence that convicted him, but his statements never went anywhere. I believe he's still convinced that he can somehow weasel his way out of this situation. Not even his own brother believed him. When Jonathan testified at the trial, it was reported that he never made eye contact with Christopher. He testified that his relationship with his brother was strained and that Christopher knew that his parents had life insurance policies. The defense's argument was that Christopher couldn't have done it due to a handful of very weak reasons. First, they claimed that he couldn't have left the house without having any blood on him. I was um, allowed in the house uh, maybe three days after the homicide, and it was a uh, it was a it, it, it was a horrible scene. It was a bloodbath. Um, there was um, there was blood literally everywhere in the house. Um, Peter Porco, obviously, you could tell, had, had walked from his master bedroom down the hall into a bathroom. Um, clearly, he had looked in the mirror, uh, led into the sink, a little half bath off the bedroom, then out the hallway, down the stairs, um, into the kitchen. And, you know, his, his brain was obviously spinning because he did things that he must have done every morning. He started to make his lunch. Uh, he went to get the newspaper. I mean, clearly, you, you could you, you could put this together readily by looking at it. And uh, then he, he uh, passed away. Uh, and there was just blood everywhere. So the state police, because they're statewide, one of the things that they did instantaneously was in Rochester, New York, they seized Christopher's Jeep. And the Jeep was placed on a flatbed truck and it was driven down to Albany and the state police took custody of it, retained custody for quite some period of time. And they took it apart down to the last, uh, you know, the last uh, lock washer. Um, plus they planted a tracking device in it, which we found, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, and there was not a molecule, not a single cell of blood in there. And I'm sorry, but 
and, and and I think that this I think this is dispositive. If I was on Law and Order, I would have won this case, because the fact of the matter is that there is it is virtually impossible for a person to have engaged in the horrific acts of homicide and assault that clearly occurred in that house and to leave there without being coated with blood. I'm sorry, it can't it can't it can't happen. Except nothing is impossible. Just because you think it would have been hard for him to leave the house without any blood on him doesn't mean he didn't. The last case I did was Donald Hartung, who slit three throats, changed his clothes, cleaned up, put his bloody clothes in a plastic bag, and took them with him. There wasn't a spot of blood in his car or in his house. Now imagine Christopher committing this crime in a house he regularly lived in. He was there for hours. He had his own bedroom in the house, which surely had clothes in it. One of the crime scene photos was of a cupboard that had a box of surgical gloves sitting next to a box of garbage bags. Christopher had also worked at a veterinary hospital and had been trained on how to clean up blood. His boss, who supported him throughout the trial, testified that he had been trained to clean up blood and not leave any on himself. On top of that, the scene wasn't actually a bloodbath. The crime scene as it existed when Christopher was there is not the crime scene that the state police encountered when they got there, okay? Because all of, most of the blood that you see throughout the house, or all of the blood that you see throughout the house, was Peter moving from the bed where he was attacked, downstairs, through the um, hallway, into the kitchen, into the parlor. Chris was long gone by the time that happened. When Chris was there, he was swinging an axe over a bed with two sleeping people, okay? And we had um, you know, experts testify about how much blood would necessarily result from this, you know, and, and the cast off from the axe. And so when you, when you went through that, the, the actual crime itself didn't create all this blood. The blood was from, you know, two people bleeding for hours and hours and moving around and touching things and falling into things. So it's not a bloody crime scene that he had to navigate. It's very possible he didn't get any blood on him. So when you take that fact, coupled with the fact that perhaps he learned um, how to clean up, and perhaps he had some protective garments that he brought with him that he threw out the window of his car, who knows? Um, I don't think that was ultimately something that the jury uh, spent a lot of time worrying about. When the attack happened, the blood was just contained to the master bedroom. Peter got up and walked around the house later, leaving blood everywhere. Can I say one other thing about the blood? As Mike said, it, we, we believed, based on what the experts said, we had a blood spatter expert. who could, We believed we knew where Christopher was standing when he was swinging the axe. We could tell that from the horrible injuries on both of the victims, the angle of the axe. We knew that the perpetrator was standing facing at the foot of the bed on the left side, swinging in this area. Most of the blood was away from that area based on what this blood spatter expert said. Also, so we knew where the perpetrator was standing. Right next to that, where that perpetrator was standing, is a chair. When you look at photos of that chair, there's not a drop of blood on that chair. So if the, if the chair could be there during this attack and not get any blood on it, the perpetrator could be there during this attack and not get any blood on him. The defense also claimed that Christopher couldn't have committed the crime because he had no history of violence. Well, Donald Hartung had no history of violence. Neither did Christopher Watts, Michael Jones Jr., Grant Amato, Joel Guy Jr., Jody Arias, or Shayna Hubers. Are they all innocent? 
Michael Jones Jr. had no history of violence, he confessed to the crime. That's just a flat-out stupid argument. This is also the same defense team that claimed that Christopher couldn't have stopped and gotten gas with cash because, quote, what young person has cash on them, end quote. Seriously, it took Christopher a full tank of gas to drive to his parents' house one way, so he would have had to stop for gas and there was no digital transaction of him getting gas. According to the defense, he couldn't have used cash. The defense also claimed that detectives didn't investigate other leads, going so far as to claim that someone reported seeing two cars speeding down Broccoli Drive on the night of the murders, but the police told them, we already know who did it, and ignored them. That report was actually investigated. Someone told police that a man who lived in Virginia had a custody dispute in the courtroom that Peter worked in and had made death threats. That was investigated. Peter actually did have an uncle who was connected to the mob named Frankie the Fireman, and people suggested it was a hit. That was investigated. The, the individual from Virginia, his name was DeLuca. He That's is someone right. who had Patrick DeLucia. Patrick DeLucia. He had threatened Peter in the past. That was a lead that was followed up on. He was alibied using swipe cards the morning of the homicide. Right, by a bunch of prosecution witnesses, they alibied him. I mean, no, no disrespect well, intended those here. Those are but... the only kind of witnesses we have. But... I know. Um, <laughs> We've, we've noticed that. Exactly. They were people that worked in Virginia, so I don't know why they would care. But anyway, he was alibied. Um, the two cars fleeing the scene, it wasn't actually on Broccoli Drive. It was in the area. And we had a description of the car, and we did everything we could. I don't know what more you can do other than interview the person who said, I saw two cars driving fast. But they didn't they interview dark. the person. They said, we don't need any more information from you because we know who did it. It was, right. su it was subsequently followed up on. Frankie the fireman, the, that theory is absurd. Uh, Frankie, there was Frankie, no mafia. Frankie was interviewed. He, yes, he was in the mafia. He did not cooperate. That's why he was in a federal prison when they went to speak to him. Uh, and the idea that the Bonanno crime family sends a hitman up to Del Mar, New York, without a weapon and tells him to find an axe and take the axe from the garage and use that one, frankly, to me, is absurd. And again, we, we tr traced that as far as we could, and as we did with all the leads. There were no other theories of the crime that made any sense outside of the theory that Christopher murdered his parents. And investigators found a lot of circumstantial evidence to support that. Just because a piece of evidence is circumstantial doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not enough to convict someone alone. One piece of circumstantial evidence may be a coincidence. Seventeen pieces of circumstantial evidence is not. The defense needed to make the jury believe that all of this was a coincidence. Peter and Joan being upset about Christopher's financial fraud, the fact that nobody saw him on the couch in the lounge, that he was seen on surveillance video leaving the campus and returning to the campus at the exact times he would have needed to, two toll booth workers who saw his yellow jeep, his parents' neighbor saw his yellow jeep, two toll tickets that perfectly matched the time he would have traveled to his parents' house and back that matched the exact timeline as the surveillance video that also had DNA with a rare marker on them, couple that with the absolute lack of emotion over the death of his father and the near death of his mother and the pictures of him out partying while he's on bail awaiting trial. He's a guilty man. Christopher Porco was found guilty of one count of second-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. The judge sentenced him to 25 years to life for each count. 
He said, quote, I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15th is something that could happen again, end quote. Christopher will be eligible for parole in 2052. He'll be 69 years old. Christopher immediately filed appeals and lost them all. After he exhausted all of his appeals, the only other option he would have would be to file a motion to vacate pursuant to Section 440.10. This is a last resort option that you can file for a number of reasons, most of which do not apply to Christopher's case. The one he's trying to use is if new evidence has been discovered since the entry of a judgment based upon a verdict of guilty after trial, which could not have been produced by the defendant at the trial even with due diligence on his part, and which is of such character as to create a probability that had such evidence been received at the trial, the verdict would have been more favorable to the defendant. He spent years hassling the Thruway Department, requesting records in what I can only assume is an effort to identify some other vehicle that matched his that could have raised questions about whether or not it was actually him that the toll operator saw that day. I don't know if he's been successful, but in his messages to me, he claimed that he'd been working on the motion for the past eight years and that it should be ready to file this summer, so sometime around now. The thing about the motion is the new evidence, if he even has any, has to have been unavailable at the time of the trial, and it has to prove that it could have changed the outcome of the trial. Both of those things are a big ask. I honestly think he's a spoiled kid that refuses to admit what he's done. I think his mother deserves to know the truth about how her husband died, and continually dragging this through court is extremely disrespectful to his poor mother. I told him as much in my last letter to him, and he responded with a pretty decent tantrum. He tried to insult me by claiming I probably lived in a basement, which I thought was rich coming from someone who was living in a prison. So he's supposed to be filing a motion to vacate sometime soon, but I wouldn't hold my breath. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. 
Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie this Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. It's flu season, and children are twice as likely as adults to catch the flu which can sometimes cause serious illness. That's why all children aged 2 to 17 can get their free nasal spray flu vaccine, a safe and effective way to protect them and the rest of your family too. So make an appointment with your GP or pharmacist. Visit hsc.ie forward slash flu for more information from the HSC.